facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Well, hello to you. Welcome to The Kale Clark Show. It's Brooke Taylor in for Kale today. It's nice to be back with you again. How are you? We have a full lineup over the next hour. Father Ken Geraci is with us, a priest with a remarkable story of redemption and mercy himself, a former agnostic. He had a profound conversion traveling through non-denominational Protestantism back home to the Catholic Church, where then he later joins the Fathers of Mercy, was ordained in 2012. So we'll hear about that. And he's also the author behind the newly released book, Spiritual Warfare and Divine Mercy, A Weapon of Our Times. He's on deck. He will be first up on the show. Then later, historian and author Philip Campbell will be with us. He has a new book out. Also, though, he's going to discuss some of the challenges, the strategies for teaching modern history, how to battle historical bias. And this is not just for Catholic formal educators. It is for everyone because part of our responsibility as Catholics is an obligation toward Christ to fully understand truth, to proclaim it, to defend it. So this is a conversation that I hope we'll do just that. And speaking of school, we have five children, my husband and I, Jim and I, four sons and a daughter, and we are homeschooling our youngest son, Augustine. He's in sixth grade. By the way, I'll just mention his birthday is the day after tomorrow. It's on Friday. So if you could say in your kindness, a quick prayer for him, but he'll be 12. And for whatever reason, he is into all things France right now. He decorated a potato and named it Francois. He found a acorn and the acorn kind of looked like a beret. So he gave it like a mustache and he called it Jacques Philippe. He is taking French lessons. Of course, he loves the French saints. We're studying the architecture, the history, uh, the great churches. And of course, he studied Napoleon and the terrible horrors of the French Revolution as well. But the reason that I'm sharing this is because with his 12th birthday coming up and engaging his maturity, so this is a big part of it also, we thought it would be okay to introduce him to the the masterpiece theater version of Les Miserables. So I don't know if you heard about this. We just stumbled upon it. It's pretty new, like the last few years, I think, of an adaptation that was brought to PBS. It's not a musical version of Les Miserables. And so my husband and I watched it, I think like a year or two ago, and it's a six-part series. So I like that too, because I think if you've never seen it, this is a great way to watch it because it's just broken up and in bite-sized pieces kind of thing, like an hour at a time. But it was also helpful because with watching it along with him, we knew what parts to skip over in the beginning, especially in the first episode, just to kind of ensure decency standards. But with the topic of mercy, with our first guest and preparing for our conversation and in and, and the theme of mercy, this is such a tremendous example of mercy. And it's an example of how one moment one act of mercy by someone else or one act of true contrition by the penitent sinner can have a ripple effect more than anything that we can ever imagine. And if you know the story or if you've seen the Masterpiece Theater version or you read the Victor Hugo book, the part I'm talking about with when it comes to mercy specifically is when Jean Valjean visits the bishop. So he is freed. I don't want to give it away, but it's it's pretty much predictable part of the story in the beginning he's in jail and the penal system where you are in jail at that time around the french revolution was terrible so you see that 
And then he gets out and he has just a few coins in his pocket and he's going with nowhere to traverse to find a place. And a bishop is the only one that will take him in. And so, you know, and he's freed after 19 years of stealing a loaf of bread. And in return for the bishop's kindness, he feeds him. He gives him a place to sleep. He provides lodging to the stranger. Jean Valjean steals from the bishop and sneaks off and has the silverware with him. And so later he's apprehended. He's brought back by the police to the bishop. What does the bishop do? Well, in this magnanimous act, he shows mercy. He protects Jean Valjean. He tells the police that the items were freely given. No, he didn't steal the silverware. I gave it to him. And not only that, he takes the candlesticks from the mantle and he says, you left the best part here. Take these two. You forgot to take the candlesticks. And so it's just incredible. You know, Jean Valjean never knew such kindness. He was stunned. And then as the scene closes, this is it. This is the key right here. The bishop says to him, promise me to become an honest man with this act of mercy Become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to what is evil, but to what is good. I have bought your soul to save it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. So with that, I want to just play. If you don't like musicals, don't worry. This is really short. But this is that line in the musical version. Take a quick listen to what he says. And remember this, my brother. In this some higher plan You must use this precious silver To become an honest man By the witness of the martyrs By the passion and the blood God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. There it is. It's so good. And so, you know, the priest's pardon of his sin was for Jean Valjean the most formidable attack he had ever sustained because it broke. He didn't know how to deal with that. He knew how to deal with harshness and hardness of heart and sin and darkness. But this act of mercy was like an arrow right to his heart that burst through his pride and changed everything. And then it goes on to the next scene and you kind of see the aftermath of this, this titanic struggle of where he's going to hold on to that hardness of heart. But then it changes and this mercy melts everything. And of course, It's an epic tale after that. And even in our times, maybe you saw in the news the images of the Israeli woman, the hostage held by Hamas. He, She was then released. And what we saw is she was holding the hand of her captor. You know, these are things that defy human nature. Only supernatural grace, mercy can perhaps explain, which is why mercy is such an astonishing, lethal tool when it comes to spiritual warfare. So I can't wait to get into more of those details and that direct correlation with our guest today. Here to tell us more is Father Ken Geraci, a priest with the Fathers of Mercy, the author of the book Spiritual Warfare and Divine Mercy, A Weapon of Our Times. Welcome to the show, Father Ken. Hi, Brooke. Thank you for having me. And what a beautiful opening. Have you seen, have you seen Les Miserables? I have. I have. It is. I, I'm sitting here choked up as you were going through that scene with the bishop and Jean Valjean. And there's just a Jean Valjean in each of us. And yeah. it, it's just, it's so powerful. So beautiful. 
Well, I guess we could start there because I know part of your story is 20 years ago, probably not imagining that you would be a priest and writing a, a book on mercy. So maybe you can kind of take us into your own journey. Well, I'll share the short version with your listeners. I was sacramentalized as a Catholic, uh, as a young person. I received the sacraments, but never knew anything about our faith. My family was a typical 1980s, 1990 Catholic family where we went to church every Sunday and just went through the motions. And as a result, um, my family struggled. Uh, my parents' marriage struggled. They ended in divorce my senior year of high school. And I never had a relationship with Christ, never read the scriptures, never had any of that. And as a result, I fell away and embraced agnosticism. I went off to college to get a business degree. And uh, in my last year of college, I was recruited out of school to go to work into the technology field. And friends of mine in that company invited me to do a software company with them, a new startup. And it was through those business relationships that my boss, of all people, who is a devout Catholic, uh, began to challenge me uh, in some of my viewpoints. And I'll summarize three or four conversations in the just one or two sentences. But effectively, Mike said to me, you know, Ken, professionally, I have no problem with you, but personally, I do. Uh, when we're with clients or investors and you see a Christian symbol, you make a Christian reference. But you've told me you don't believe in God. You don't pray. You don't go to church. And Ken, honestly, some of the stories you tell are unbecoming a man, let alone a Christian. Wow. So my first conversion was very much to authenticity and integrity. And there was a challenge to that. But Mike didn't stop there. He invited me to come to Mass with me and his family. And then God began to flood my life with just amazing Christian and Catholic men and women. And it is an act of courage, I suppose, for, for Mike, you know, to do that, to confront another man, because that's your pride. But what a beautiful grace, because he was spot on. He was right. And your response obviously changed your life and in how many people with that ripple effect, because I had a chance uh, to listen to the conversation you had with Drew Mariani several weeks back, really pleased to just uh, listen to that interview when you were on with him and talking about how to now a great deal of your duties consists of being a traveling missionary. And to that point, you say in your opening pages of your book, and again, the book is called Spiritual Warfare and Divine Mercy, A Weapon of Our Times. You say, everywhere I go without exception, people are asking for prayers for their family members or friends who have fallen away from the faith. Far too many lament the fact that their children are no longer practicing their faith, their Catholic faith, or that their grandchildren have never received sacraments or even get to hear the holy name of Jesus and his teachings in their homes. And you go on to say, every one of us knows the pain of having those we love inch closer to eternal damnation because they have abandoned Jesus and conformed themselves to the world. So, you know, this is part of your story. It's part of your mission now. And where does divine mercy come in as a weapon? I think in the kind of introduction of seeing Jean Valjean, that kind of sets the stage, but in the way that you intended it for this book. I think that, you know, I don't, I don't know that I've written anything original in any of this. I'm just trying to reflect what I've experienced through divine mercy myself and, and how it can be a powerful tool for everyone. And it's more than a tool. When, when Jesus reveals himself to St. Faustina, he doesn't say my attribute is divine mercy. He says, I am the divine mercy. His very essence, his, his being is, is divine mercy. And when you look at the divine mercy image, the historical image, Christ is coming out of pure blackness. There is no floor. There are no doors. There's no 
there's nothing other than Christ coming out of the darkness. And I was with one theologian who studied this image, and he, he made this comment. I was stunned by it. He said, we, as theologians, we, we always question why there was no, no background. No, there was no, nothing other than Christ in the darkness. And, and my immediate response was, clearly, you've never lived in darkness. Clearly, you've never been without hope. And myself as a child, as a young person, my adolescence, I was suicidal. I suffered from depression. Um, so I understand the blackness of that image. And so many people in our world know the darkness. But it is Christ that comes into the darkness. He finds us where no one else could find us. It's Christ that comes into the darkness and knows exactly where to look to find and touch our heart. What an incredible, powerful description, Father Ken. And also, too, we think of trust. Jesus, I trust in you. But hope is also very much enmeshed, intertwined in that as well. Um, and, and that description of stepping out of the darkness is, is profound. That's beautiful. And, and you also go on to say, too, to that point, we have two choices. We can either surrender or we can fight. And, you say, you know, those who are blindly optimistic and just say, but Father, what's the big deal? I read the last chapter of the Bible. We win, right? We've all heard that before. Maybe we've said that too. But which you say, but what's the score? Did your children make it to the winning side? Did your loved one make it to heaven? And of course, we trust in God's mercy. But you talk about Our Lady of Fatima and just the dangers of living the misunderstood Christian life. And maybe you could explain a little bit of what the misunderstood Christian life is and why it's so dangerous for the soul. Well, I'll, I'll jump into that, but I want to link into what you just said about the hope and the trust is that when we exercise this divine mercy devotion, whether it's the feast day, the image or the chaplet um, or going to the confession, things of this nature, we're saying, Lord, I trust you to go find my family members. I trust you to go into the darkness and reach where I can't reach the touch where I can't touch. It's really making that act of faith to let God be God. And I think that ties into the misunderstood Christian life is that so many times that we look at the Christian life is that we go to church, we say our prayers, we just check the boxes, everything is going to be okay. And we forget that the devil has declared war on us. And we have to fight in, in a very serious way to resist sin to uh, to do the good. I mean, I don't want to do the good. I want what you know. Saint Paul says, you know, I, I want my body wants to do what I don't want to do. You know, it's there's this whole thing of this struggle, and for us to take the call of the Christian life seriously and soberly and with urgency is really the key thing. So many people are just lulled into uh, what I call intoxication of the emotions or we're just caught up in the world that we live and we forget to pursue and fight for goodness. Yeah, and that really ties into a lot of, I know in the back of your book, you have examination of conscience, always ever being mindful of our interior life, our soul, and trusting in our Lord, but also working as well, you know, building that muscle, praying, the prayer life is so key. And you have a lot of powerful imagery in the book. One example is how the church is often referred to as a ship or a boat that sails upon the sea of time, journeying towards our heavenly homeland. And you offer four points that I love. You say, 
Number one, follow the captain's orders. Number two, know your job and do it with excellence. Number three, while doing your job, look to see if you can assist others. And number four, do not sink your own ship or shoot at your crewmates. <laughs> I really like that. I mean, they seem like really clear directives, but you know, what are some maybe practical examples that we can apply right now today in those four points? Well, it's one of those things that we look at vocation and what is your, your vocation? You know, you're a, you're a wife and mother. And so your primary vocation is your universal call to holiness, being a daughter of God. Your secondary vocation is being a spouse to your husband. Your third vocation is being a mother to your children. Now, being good at one should make you better at the other. And so we have to seek to invest in these, these dimensions of our vocation. You know, I'm a priest and religious, but I have my universal call to holiness, my vows that I've made in my religious community, and my sacred priesthood on top of that. And so how do I seek to nourish each one and learn and educate myself and seek to live it and renew my vows on a regular basis? Uh, Doing these things can, and I think those four points that you list out are ways to execute on those vows and the vocations by which we find ourselves. That's so good. And, you know, often, most of the time, it's it's the very most obvious and basic and immediate, you know, tend, being able to attend to what is committed to us, our vocation, our prayer life, our Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on Him. And that's the beauty of the image as well. And, you know, every day here on Relevant Radio, Drew and Maggie, they pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet. You just, we hear astonishing stories of evidence of mercy in the callers, answer to prayers. I know you do, you know, traveling all over. We talk a lot about the devotion, the image, and you did an incredibly comprehensive job of laying that out in your book. Again, it's called Spiritual Warfare and Divine Mercy, A Weapon of Our Times. But I also want to ask you about some of the maybe lesser known aspects of divine mercy and spiritual warfare, like praying a spiritual mass and how to pray the mass in that way. Can you take us into that aspect? Well, we have to kind of link back to what the chaplet of divine mercy before. I think your listeners can understand how to pray a spiritual mass, so to speak. We talk about making a spiritual communion. We heard about that extensively during the COVID season, um, where you unite yourself with our Lord and invite him to come to you as you would in Holy Communion. You can use a variety of prayers to do that. But I make a point in the book about praying a spiritual mass because of the power and the essence of the Divine Mercy Chaplet. When we look at the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, I make the argument here that it is the extension of the liturgy of the Eucharist, specifically the great doxology where the priest has elevated the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus and presents Christ to the Father, saying, through him, with him, and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. And the people in the church respond, amen. And so the chaplet of divine mercy, the main prayer, eternal father, I offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity of your dearly beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in atonement for our sins and those of the whole world. The thesis of this book, what, what this book is built around is this essence that the chaplet is an extension of the liturgy of the Eucharist. Because where do we find the body, blood, soul, and divinity? Well, this is the Eucharist itself. The Eucharist is the Mass. The Mass is Calvary represented. And so when we look at the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, this is really the essence of what we're entering into. The upper room, the cynical, the Last Supper. 
Calvary, Christ's perfect offering of himself to the Father that we unite ourselves with. And so this is the power of the chaplet. And so praying a spiritual mass, I offer the idea of meditating on the mysteries of the rosary as the first portion, as the liturgy of the word, because the rosary is a meditation on the life of Christ. So you meditate on the mysteries of the rosary that you choose to pray. And then you go from the mysteries of the rosary into the sacrifice of Calvary, that we join ourselves in that offering of Christ to God the Father in this one perfect offering. And so those two united together, in a sense, makes this devotional sense of a pious practice of what I call a spiritual mass. And I really recommend the book, too, because you have it's so rich with so many tools and it's three parts it's divided into basics of battle calling upon the divine on divine mercy in battle and other aids for battle and then of course the examination of conscience not just for adults but for teens i love that you did that too at the end of the book father Mm -hmm. and we just have a a few minutes left but i wanted to ask you is there one thing about your study of divine mercy for you i know you said this book is a compilation of a lot of your talks and previous studies that you've done and lived but with regards to spiritual warfare and particularly assembling this book that impacted you the most, what catches your heart the most? For me, at the end of the day, I, because my, I'm the only practicing Catholic in my immediate family. I am no different than any of your listeners. I, I don't come from a perfect situation. I am fighting for the souls of people I love. And I pray at least one chapel to divine mercy every single day, minimum one. And I've consecrated the first decade of my Divine Mercy Chaplet for my family. So I know that every single day, at minimum, I am uniting myself with Christ in Calvary for them. So I know every day I have done everything in my power from a spiritual perspective to unite myself to Christ, to unite them to Him, place them at the foot of the cross and allow his blood and water to flow over them for their salvation. And at the end of the day, I can lay my head on the pillow saying, I fought like a knight for my family members and friends and for everyone I love today. And that's what it means to be valiant and a hero. And you are. Thank you so much. What a beautiful, beautiful practice. Just trying. And to consecrate the first decade. such a gift to be with you. Thank you. Father, as we uh, conclude, would you give us a blessing? I can. The Lord be with you. And through the intercession of the Immaculate Virgin Mother of God, who gave us the divine mercy, may Almighty God bless and keep and protect in the name of the Father and of the Son Son and of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Father Ken Geraci, again, the name of the book is Spiritual Warfare and Divine Mercy, A Weapon of Our Times. It is available through TAN Books. Thank you so much, Father. Thank you. God bless. God bless you. And you're listening to The Kale Clark Show. We'll link up the book for you on the show page so that you can access that. It's Brooke Taylor in for Kale. Historian and writer Philip Campbell will be with us after the break. We'll talk about some of the challenges and strategies for teaching modern history, how to battle historical bias. It's a real thing. And a beautiful new set he also has out. It's a series called The Story of Mary. That is next here on Relevant Radio and the app. My life he claims for God alone. Can such things be? For I have come to hate the world. This world that always hated.
Sometimes we hear a story that takes our breath away. Why go where you know you might get sick, maybe even die? St. Damien of Molokai did just that with leper colonies in what we now know as modern-day Hawaii. But why did he do it? What drove him to love the leper? Whether you know the story by heart already or whether you've never heard about his heroic virtue and remarkable life, you will be edified and renewed. You can sign up for a free video series at relevantradio.com slash encounter. That's relevantradio.com slash encounter. The story of Mary from the dawn of time to today is a brand new series from Philip Campbell. Mr. Campbell is an author, historian, instructor of history and economic at Homeschool Connections, and previously served two terms as mayor of Howell, Michigan. That's a fun fact. His writings have also appeared in the St. Austin Review and National Catholic Register and more, and delighted now to welcome him to the program. Hello, Philip. Hi there. Hi. Well, before we commence with questions, I want to actually make sure to sh- share the phone lines here. one 914 It's Brooke Taylor in for Kale. Philip will be with us for the rest of the hour. Lots to cover, not only about the story of Mary, but also the study of history in general, learning how to identify some fallacies, maybe some anti-Catholic uh, polemics, historical bias. So any questions along those lines, fair game. one 914 Nine one four nine. So, Philip, uh, you know, we just like a week and a half ago celebrated Columbus Day, and that has, it seems, become increasingly unpopular in recent years. And I think maybe that's a good example, a good place to start of, of undergoing a bit of an ideological, maybe cultural shift, depending on who you ask when it comes to history, learning about history. I know there's also been attempts to discredit like St. Unipero Sarah, for example. So you maybe can set the table with that understanding and learning history. Do we blame this on the Reformation? Is it wokeness? What's the issue here? And how can we trust the history we read? Well, history is, is always going to be charged, especially when there's, you're still dealing with the ramifications of historical events today. And there's always going to be different perspectives based on, you know, which, which side you're talking about or which groups of people were involved. And to some degree, that's just natural. It doesn't necessarily imply there's a bias or something amiss is always going on. It's, it's quite natural that you're going to see different perspectives on history from, uh, from different people and groups over time. Um, but then sometimes you do get intentional attempts to weaponize history, to, um, to use history as a political weapon, to push an agenda in the in the modern time like right now here and now um because history is really bound up with our identity um in the movies when you watch a movie about someone who has amnesia you know they wake up and they don't know who they are right they can't remember their name their loss of history uh in equates to a loss of identity and that's what creates the dramatic arc in those amnesia movies right? right but it's the same thing with cultures like if we uh, have our history messed with, or we forget our history, or it's re- rewritten, that in turn has effects for how we perceive our identity here and now. And so in, t- in today's world, when people are fighting so much about identity, um, history can be a weapon. And so you, you often find, uh, find histories that are they're kind of bent or biased or weaponized in the service of a political agenda. And in terms of how you can protect yourself about uh, from that, it's it it's not 
super easy because it's so quickest. It's everywhere. Um, but some general principles are just, you have to become historically literate yourself. Um, for example, if you want to know good food from bad food, you have to eat lots of food in general, right? So that you can start to tell what is good. You can develop a taste, a discerning taste, you know? I don't know anything about wine. To me, all wine tastes the same. But if I wanted to be a wine connoisseur, I'd have to drink a lot of it, you know, to start to develop that discernment of what's good and what's bad. And similarly, uh, with with history or really with any written material, you have to read a, a lot of it and you have to you have to get it from different sources. I'm always leery when people say that they get all their information from one or two sources, uh, because that gives that gives one or two sources an oversized importance in your brain, you know. We need to get uh, historical information from multiple sources. And sometimes um, I will read multiple books or articles from different perspectives, um, even from perspectives that I think I might not be inclined to agree with, to try to get a big picture, to see where everybody's coming from. And, but in general, the more you read history, the more you start to familiarize yourself with how things are, and you start to recognize when somebody's, uh, when somebody's pushing a narrative. Um, one thing I will do with my students is I will have them read biased history on purpose. Um, like I will tell them we're going to read a, a biased account of, you know, whatever. And then I will have them do some critical um, reading and, and say, how can you tell what the author's opinion is here? How can you identify where the bias is? And they will look through the language and try to figure out, um, okay, I can tell that he's sympathizing with this because of that. So I think it's a good thing to do to to sometimes read through and identify these things um, so that we can we can understand how language can be manipulated because you're not going to get away from bias. It's it's just going to be there. And it's not all it's not all bad. You know, it it just comes from people having different perspectives. So I think the the best overall advice is just read things critically, Mm -hmm. get your information from multiple sources and try to become broadly knowledgeable about history in general, so you're less likely to be taken in by false narratives. Yeah, boy, there's so much good in what you said that gets your wheels turning and just starting to think of, you know, the things that we learn. Like, for example, I did not learn growing up, and I'd be curious to hear from anyone else about the Battle of Lepanto. I feel like with social media, relevant radio, and and just great Catholic identity and formation, it wasn't until I was an adult, but I think more more of us are hearing about the Battle of Lepanto. Why is October the month formally called, you know, dedicated to Our Lady of Victory, now Our Lady of the Rosary? And these are things that just weren't in, in my own history book. And the, the literacy of history is going down, let alone even the way that it might be portrayed or communicated. And, you mm-hmm. know, just even thinking about Mary, Queen of Scott, you know, Mary um, Tudor, I think. Now, I can't, I'm so, (laughs) I get so dripped up with all of the the royalty back through time, and it's important, but she was called Bloody Mary, so I thought she was always terrible, but the Protestants called her Bloody Mary, so that's an interesting note. There's so many things, like you said, if it's an Anglo-Saxon perspective, that it's going to be told probably with anti-Catholic bias. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and we have to think of how biased that is um, to call her Bloody Mary. Yes, that's one perspective on her. But like you said, that's just coming from from one side. Right. But somehow it got enshrined in uh, in the English language and people will call her Bloody Mary without even knowing anything, uh, anything about her whatsoever. And I would agree. I didn't hear about I did not learn about the Battle of Lepanto until I was an adult practicing Catholic. 
I never came across it in secular history. In my history studies as a young man, I never heard of it. And I think that's because um, the Battle of Lepanto has gallant Christian heroes fighting against Muslims, which is too reminiscent of the Crusades. And the Crusades are a uh, are a no-no to to uh, idealize or, or, or look upon in, in any heroic sense. And so it just wasn't, um, it just wasn't, it was a masculine, powerful Christianity, you know, that, uh, that is kind of like not popular. <laughs> so it just didn't make its way into the, the modern history text. So I was, I was shocked when I learned about this battle that changed the course of Western history. For sure, and the aspect of prayer and the miracle, just and even like the wind. I never know if I say it right. If it's winged hussars or winged hussars, you have that in the story of civilization. And I'll just give a plug: your four volumes are outstanding that are available for tan books for homeschooling and history, and really beginning from ancient history all the way up through early American history. And and you talk about that. And what is so beautiful is it really captures the imagination of your readers in the way that you write and articulate, but then also bake in the beauty of our faith and how that animated these actions. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm really glad that you've benefited so much from those books. And yes, that chapter on the the Battle of Vienna and the Winged Hussars was one of my favorite chapters to write. The Winged Hussars are these these Polish cavalry that have these huge decorative uh, kind of wings that they wear on their back with, with these feathers. I think they were, I can't remember, swan feathers or some big, big feathers. So when they ride, when they ride in the charge, you have the sound of the horses, but then there's like this, like, you know, like flapping noise of the, of the feathers as well to intimidate the enemy. And it's such a, such a cool image. And their, their, their battle cry was the praise of our lady. I mean, that's amazing. Yes. Yes. A lot of these medieval uh, Christian warriors had, had religious battle cries. One of my favorites is the Castilians who would yell St. James and at them before they charged. <laughs> what what was it? St. James and what? St. James and at them. Oh. <laughs> That's what it translates to in English. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It, there's, there's so much great history, um, uh, not just of the church, but the way that the, the faith kind of informed the way culture developed over our, our Western civilization. And yeah, I'm really happy to have been able to help people recover some of this through these books. Absolutely. It's so important. And lest I sound like I'm glorifying battle, I'm not. Again, you, you weave the, this timeline history and the, everything about the era of that time and all the dynamics, which is very difficult to do. I mean, take what's happening right now in the Holy Land and mm-hmm. just to even try to get a, a clear understanding is very difficult for the average person and people are so passionate about it of course we're living in the here and now so you know oft it's not history yet to us but covid or many different things uh to be able to look back and say there's you know depending on who's going to tell the history uh it, it would be interesting let alone presidents for example and so in speaking of that i know that you've had as a historian access to manuscripts and archives and period references and that might cast a different light on some famous figures what we've been talk uh taught do you have any any favorite people that might surprise us that are either kind of forgotten or commonly misrepresented that catholics ought to know about what just in history in general yeah Oh, yeah. I just wrote an article about one um, on uh, Catholic Exchange, which is Prince Eugene of Savoy, who was a great Catholic hero of the 18th century. 
that I think most Catholics aren't familiar with because, uh, for one thing, he's uh, he comes from the Holy Roman Empire, and Catholics generally aren't as familiar. We're very familiar in this country with English history, French history, Western Europe, but we're not very familiar with like Hungary and you know what was going on over there. So I think Prince Eugene of Savoy is a lot less known. Um, but also his victories tend to be overshadowed by Lepanto, but he was instrumental in um, in saving Europe from the from the Turks every bit as much as Don John of Austria was. Um, in fact, I think his his victories were even more uh, long lasting and influential. Um, but for some reason, he's gotten kind of overshadowed, and I'm not I'm not sure why. Prince Eugene of Savoy. Okay, we'll have to look that up in the article that you <laughs> referenced. Yeah, yes. And uh, can I tell the story? Yes. Oh, please. Yeah. So we, we were just talking about the siege of Vienna when the when the Turks came to attack Vienna and they were saved by the by the Poles under Jan Sobieski in 1683. And for most Catholics, we just kind of uh, clap and say happy ending. Yay, we won. But what we don't realize that wasn't the end. The Turks were not completely defeated. They went back and they they uh, rebuilt their army and they spent a whole generation plotting revenge. And then around 1716, they invaded Austria with the intention of wiping Austria and the Holy Roman Empire off the map. And they had a huge army of something like 160,000 infantry. So it was a major threat. And uh, the Holy Roman Empire sent out um, Prince Eugene of Savoy, who led a much smaller force to combat the Turks. And he had a series of stunning victories over the Turks um, at, uh, at Petrovardin and all these different cities. And he captured this Turkish fortress at Temeswar and liberated all of Hungary from the Turks in 1716. The entire country of Hungary was liberated, which had been under Turkish control for almost two centuries. Wow. And this happened during the week of October 7th. And people couldn't help but notice the connection between these victories and Lepanto, which also mm-hmm. happened at the same time. And so the Pope at the time, who was Pope Clement the something, sorry, I don't have it all in my head. Um, <laughs> but Pope Clement, um, he, he took the occasion to elevate the Feast of Our Lady of Victory from Lepanto to a universal feast and change the name to Our Lady of the Holy Rosary, because until then, it was only a feast celebrated uh, in Spain and at churches that had altars dedicated to the Rosary. Wow. But due to the victories of Prince Eugene of Savoy, he elevated to a universal feast and changed the name to Our Lady of the, the Holy Rosary. And Prince Eugene would go on to have even more victories, and he liberated uh, much of the Balkans from the Turks. So this kind of fills in the gaps, like at the Battle of Lepanto the Tur- and Vienna, the Turks are this huge, looming menace. And then by the time we get to 1900, they're called the Sick Man of Europe, and the Ottoman Empire is on the verge of collapse. Well, it's Prince Eugene of Savoy that turned the tide. He was a, a pious Catholic hero mm-hmm. that uh, that did more to roll back I- Islamic power in Europe than than anybody else uh, in the modern in the pre-modern period. So I think Catholics should familiarize themselves with his story because it's truly impressive. Well, yes, and thank you. That was impressive to be able to just recount that. In fact, uh, Jim just said, our producer, that he linked to the article. So in the show notes, if you go to the Kale Clark Show page, after we wrap and you can share the pod as well, you can link to this exact story so we can learn more about Prince uh, Eugene of Savoy. And we have to take a quick break. 
But uh, historian author Philip Campbell is my guest. We've been discussing some of the challenges and the strategies of teaching modern history. And I think one of the strategies is really spotlighting these amazing stories that we ought to know about and how to also battle historical bias. His new book is called Story of Mary. It's a new release from Tan Books. When we come back, we'll find out why this book is different from other Marian books and so beautifully unique. So we'll get into the pages of that. The studio line is open if you want to connect with Philip Campbell. One triple eight nine one four nine one four nine here on the Kale Clark Show. It's Brooke Taylor in for Kale. We'll be right back here on Relevant Radio and the app. This is the Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. November 1st is exactly one week away. One week from today, we will be observing the solemnity of all saints. It's a holy day of obligation. And it ushers in a month when we celebrate the lives of our friends and family who have died. We pray for their entry into the kingdom of heaven. Join your relevant radio family in prayer as we offer a novena for these holy souls. You can submit up to 20 names of your departed loved ones at relevantradio.com slash souls. Again, that's relevantradio.com slash souls. You'll receive reflections from Father Rocky each day of the novena that will help you uh, enter in deeper into prayer. Also encourage your friends and family to add their loved ones and join us throughout the day for the novena on November 2nd through November 10th during daily mass, which is live streamed divine mercy chaplet and the family rosary across America on relevant radio. It's Brooke Taylor in for kale. Happy to be with you today. And we've been talking about history. Uh, fantastic guest as we're talking with Philip Campbell. I know that we are coming to the end of the month, but we were just talking about the month of October dedicated to Our Lady of the Rosary. What's the origin of that? So we were hearing about the Battle of Lepanto and uh, Prince Eugene of Savoy. And also, and that's just an example of the fantastic work that Mr. Campbell has, great history books on Tian. But also, Philip, you have this new series called The Story of Mary, from the dawn of time to today. Can you tell us about it? Yes. Well, just uh, one correction. It's not a series. It's just a standalone book, but it does have several components to it. There's a book. You can get an audio drama. There's video lectures. There's a workbook. So there's a whole series of kind of aligned uh, products that go with the story of Mary. But um, the story of Mary is, um, if you're familiar with story of civilization and story of the church, it's written in the exact same style as those history books. You've got 30-plus chapters of history uh, with, with tons of historical fiction, little vignettes and stories sprinkled throughout uh, the book. And it basically is a all-encompassing book about Our Lady. After we did the story of the Church, we thought, you know, Mary's so important in the Catholic faith that she really deserves to have a, have a book of her own in this series. And the challenge in this was to write, um, to, to, to get every, I mean, St. Bernard says about Mary, one can never say that. So that was my problem, practically speaking, when I was writing the book, was how to make this concise and informative and get all the information in. Um, well, because so who it, is it for? I didn't mean to interrupt, but is it for kids or is it for everyone? Well, I, oh, okay, so there's, that, that's not quite a simple question, but it's, it's Sorry. for kids. Like that's, <laughs> no, that's okay. This is a good question, though. I, we wrote it for kids, like it's supposed to be for elementary and middle schoolers, and it was supposed okay. to be part of like a like if you were doing a, like a religion curriculum at home and you wanted to dedicate a year or a semester to studying Our Lady, then this book was ideal. But after the book came out, most of the feedback 
is from adults who are reading the book <laughs> and, and just saying like, I picked it, you know, I got this book for my kid, but I picked it up because I really didn't understand this or that. And I'm hearing feedback from adults that are reading this book as a means to understand more about the Blessed Mother. So uh, it's written technically for kids, but I'm now upgrading its audience to everybody based on the feedback um, because it is so all-encompassing. It, it doesn't just talk about Marian spirituality. This is what makes it different from other Marian books, um, which is that we wanted to get everything. We wanted to get the scripture, the history, the theology, the apparitions, the art, the architecture, the cultural stuff, uh, the devotions, we wanted to get everything in, in this book. And so that's what we did. It's, it's a, just a comprehensive book about the Blessed Mother. It says from the dawn of time to today, because it starts back in, it starts with uh, the Old Testament and, and uh, mm. symbols of Our Lady in the Old Testament and takes it all the way through. Um, it's written like a history book, but you're really reading a Mariology book. You just don't realize it. <laughs> so you I get love to the end. that. It's even got yeah, apologetics and- in it. Well, that's what I was going to say, because uh, I just ordered it, so I don't have it yet. I'm so excited. And as you're talking about it, uh, thinking of all the different applications, but that is one thing I noticed that piqued my interest is apologetics for when non-Catholics challenge Marian devotion. You have that already. So the kids at this earliest formation are able to reply and defend with great truth right there. Yeah, and it's structured right into the text. I mean, we do have a question and answer chapter at the end about uh, common questions and answers, but most of the apologetics is structured right in. So when we talk about, for example, the Immaculate Conception in that chapter, I deal right there with, uh, with objections to the Immaculate Conception and, and answer them according to the Church's tradition. So um, it, it kind of is an all-encompassing book that really is not meant to just educate you about the Blessed Mother, but help you to fall in love with the Blessed Mother, help you to um, to see why she's so central and why she's so beloved of Catholic, uh, among Catholics. And it's not just, it's not just Eurocentric either. I go to, I, I tell the story of Our Lady of Levant from, from Vietnam. We go to the Philippines, Egypt, all these places uh, to, to look at how Our Lady is loved around the world. Mm, that's one of the things I love in the Basilica in Nazareth is you see these renderings of the Blessed Virgin Mary and how she's appeared to the people all over the world from Czestochowa, Poland to Thailand. And I'm curious that for you. as you're... in the book too. Oh, that's wonderful. Chestahova's oh, that's great. Right. Yeah. yeah. I heard yeah. you tell the story. Yep. Yeah. And, and the image that we're so familiar with, with the black Madonna. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what were some things you learned that, because as you're talking, it's neat to hear, you love what you do, obviously, as a historian, but just maybe things that you learned in writing the story of Mary. Yeah, well, uh, we decided to do, and this, this I can't take credit for this because it was, it was my editor's idea. Uh, shout out to Brian Kennelly from TAN, thank you. But um, he, he said, let's do things that Our Lady has inspired Um so there we did, we did Marian art and architecture, but we also did like uh, a study of like cities and geographical features that are named after Our Lady, right? Like, like rivers or mountains. We did, uh, and then I did, I did like companies that were dedicated to Mary because there's, wow. there's companies out there that are, that have a Marian character or their names have Marian origins. We don't, uh, we don't realize it. Like, um, like Farrah Rocher chocolates, you know, those little gold wrapped chocolates. Oh yeah. Um, the, that name comes from the full French, and I'm not going to, I'm not, I can't speak French, so I'm not going to say it, but um, that is directly named after the full name of the Grotto of Massabiel at Lourdes. It's in, it's like Massabiel de 
you know, and uh, Ferro Rocher chocolates are named after that grotto. The, the founder of the company named it specifically after the, the Grotto of Lords. Um, and so there were several companies like that that I studied where I was like, wow, the, the owners directly were trying to pay homage to the Blessed Virgin in the names they chose for these companies. So that was really cool to dig into that. I also loved learning about the Marian art. Um, I, I did a lot of research about the different uh, sort of um, forms that Marian art has taken over the years. And my favorite, I just, I think I just mentioned this on another program, but so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but yeah. um, the, uh, the, the, the Sedes Sapientiae, which is a seat of wisdom, yep. which is a high medieval um, theme where Mary would be, this is a statuary theme where Mary would be shown sit, seated and then Christ would be seated on her lap and Mary forms like a chair. She, she, her body kind of doubles as a throne mm-hmm. and Christ is sitting on her lap like a king sitting on the throne. And it's called a seat of wisdom image because uh, Mary is portrayed as the seat or the throne uh, upon which Christ, the wisdom of God, is seated. And you see these images all over uh, the high Middle Ages. And this was the popular image before. In the Renaissance, we get the image of like the tender mother, like kind of nursing the child or the more more um, humanistic visions of Mary and Christ. But before that, you had these more imperial visions of Mary where she would be seated in a more stoic position, wearing sometimes wearing an imperial crown, and then Christ seated on her lap as a as a ruling prince. And I really loved the I really loved the image. I loved the kind of artistic motif of her body doubling as a chair. I just thought it was so cool, and I wrote a lot about it in the book. So you can tell when you get to that chapter on Marian statues, you can tell that I really loved that concept. Yeah, and that's the best way to learn is when your teacher is passionate and on fire, and clearly you are. What a great way to conclude. We have to wrap up on that note, but the story of Mary from the dawn of time to today is available. Tan Books, again, we'll link this up in the show notes. Considering the beauty of our Holy Queen, almost like a mini Marian retreat as we prepare for the family rosary across America with Father Rocky. That's coming up after Trending with Timory. And also want to say thank you to our first guest, Father Ken Geraci. If you missed him, you can check the pod. And his book is called Spiritual Warfare and Divine Mercy, A Weapon of Our Times. Thank you to Father Ken. Philip Campbell, God bless you. Jesus, I trust in you. Hail Holy Queen. Thank you to Jim and Patrick on the phones. My name is Brooke Taylor. Trending is up next. God bless you.